Welcome, Calvary Quaker Town. It's good to have you join us this morning. I hope you all enjoyed your extra hour last night. You know, by the way, you really don't get an extra hour. You know that, right? It's not like they add an hour. You just kind of change the clock. Well, you understand. You lose that hour soon anyway. Well, we're in a series that we're calling Fruitology, where we're thinking about spiritual fruit that's described in the Bible, but we don't just want to think about it. The purpose of the series is to cultivate that fruit so that individually we would be producing that fruit, and as a community we would be producing the fruit. So the purpose isn't just to learn more about fruit. The purpose is to cultivate and produce more fruit. Now, one of the things you've heard me say, and I'm going to try to show you this over the next couple of weeks, is how often that picture is used in the Bible, people producing fruit for the benefit of others. The biblical authors love that picture. So here's another one I was reminded of this week from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, by their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? Do they pick figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. By their fruit, you will recognize them. So here's my question. If people just observe you, observe you, hang out with you, people you work with, people in your development, people in your extended family, what do they think is driving you based on the fruit you're producing? Would they say, boy, that person really has the gospel at the center of their life. Boy, that person is into giving time, treasure, and talent for the benefit of others. Just as they've experienced awesome things from God, they are now giving those. Is that what they would say? Every good tree produces good fruit. By their fruit you will recognize them. What are they recognizing as they hang out with us? That's kind of convicting, isn't it? Now here's the point. What's inside will eventually come out. You all know that. If you're married, you know that. What's inside will eventually come out. It's apple cider season. Have you ever made apple cider? I haven't. It's too much work. I get my apple cider giant. Uh, but you ever go to one of these fairs or, you know, kind of community events where they pretend it's like the 1300s or something and they do all that work, like, to make apple cider? And so I've seen apple cider made, like, in person. The first thing you do is you, like, pulverize, you know, kind of get the apples into, like, mush. I hate apples. like you get, and, then, and then you squeeze it. And you got these big presses, you turn the thing, and apple juice is running out across all the dirty boards. And they're going to drink that? I've got to sanitize that or sterilize it or something. Then it comes out, and eventually you leave it sit for a little while. And depending on how much kick you like in your cider, you, let it, you understand. And eventually you have apple cider coming out, right? What's inside? will eventually come out. And nothing like pressure causes it to come out. But when it comes to good fruit, the best stuff comes out under pressure. I would much rather drink orange juice than eat an orange. Under pressure, the best stuff comes out. I like to squeeze a lime in my club soda. I like apple cider. And it, what's inside will eventually come out, and nothing like pressure will bring it out. So when you're being squeezed, what's coming out? 
Jesus says, I want you to be changed on the inside so that when you're pressured, the best stuff comes out. That's why we're doing the series, so that when we're squeezed, the best stuff comes out. In order to help us do that, we've been memorizing a couple verses. You thought I was forgetting, didn't you? Memorizing a couple verses from Galatians 5. So here are our memory verses. Say it with me. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So when you're under pressure, is that the stuff coming out? Like when you're really being squeezed, right? Pressure's on at work, love's just pouring out, right? Joy, right? Peace, that, why not? Well, yeah, because we've got the wrong stuff on the inside. That's why we need this series, right? Look, I know you all. That's why we need the series. All right, a little bit of memory work, a few blanks in the verses. I <laughs> yeah, I said we're going to trip them up this week. All right, you ready? You should know by now. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control against such things. Well, this morning we come to peace. We come to peace. So we're going to take a look at peace. And I do want to tell you right up front, everybody's pursuing peace. You ever notice that? I mean, I've never met anybody that says, I'm really working hard to find conflict. You know, I re now there are people that find it, conflict, regularly, but they're not searching for it, and they usually blame other people when they get into it. There are some people that are driven by conflict, but they would never say they're trying to find it. They just fall into it. We're all looking for peace. Uh, here are a couple of examples. I went to Amazon, right, Amazon.com, hit the little books button, typed in the word peace. On the screen appeared the first 12 items in a list of 384,204 books on peace. Now, some of them are weird, like war and peace. That's not... 384,204 books on peace. People want peace, don't you think? So here are a couple titles I found. I'm not going to read too many. Making peace with the things in your life. Do you have disruption and conflict because a thing? Some of you have so many things you can't even walk around in your house, right? Um, but think, things can mess up your life, right? You have too many things. It creates conflict. Here's another title. Inner peace for busy people. That's what I need, right? Inner peace for busy people. 52 strategies for developing inner peace. I sat there and looked at this. What? I'm trying to find inner peace because my life's full of turmoil. Now I have to learn 52 strategies in order to find that inner peace. Now I've got more conflict because I've got to learn 52 things I don't know. But my favorite title is this one. I think we had a picture of my favorite. There it is, five minutes peace. Five minutes peace. And it really is a pretty sound theological book, by the way. Uh, let me tell you about Five Minutes Inner Peace by Jill Murphy. It's about a mother elephant trying to find a little peace in her hectic life. So she uh, puts the kids, you know, gives them a little something to do, and she wanders to the bathroom where she's going to get a peaceful bath with a cup of tea. Yeah, she knows sooner it gets into the bath with a cup of tea when there's a knock at the door. Then another knock at the door. Then another. Some of you can relate to this, right? Well, eventually, by the time the book ends, all the baby elephants are in the bathtub with the mother, and the mother says she found peace. 
That's a good theological truth, right? We often try to find peace. I bet a whole bunch of those 384,000 books, I bet a whole bunch of those books are saying, if only we could organize the circumstances of our lives, then we'll have peace. But the mother elephant learned the lesson, right? You don't find peace by orchestrating all the details of your life on the outside. You find inner peace on the inside so that in the midst of a storm, you can still be at peace. That's a pretty good theological lesson. You may want to pick up that book. Um, five minutes peace. Well, there are also some myths, and the myths kind of relate to what I was just saying. So maybe uh, some of these myths are familiar to you because you're actually thinking the myth is going to work out. So here are some of the myths. If I just had enough money in the bank, I'd have peace. My guess is you know or you know of people that have a whole bunch of money in the bank. In fact, you would love to trade bank accounts. But yet they don't have any peace, do they? So that must be a myth. How about this one? I'm really nervous about my doctor's report. If I get a good doctor's report, I'll have peace. Here's my guess. If you were to look around in the auditorium, you'd find a number of people that have gotten pretty good doctor's reports this year. Well, they don't all have peace. It's something else. Well, if good health isn't bringing peace to them, why do you think it's going to bring it for you? If I had a long enough vacation, then I'd have peace. You know, I need more than a week or two, right? You get away. It takes you a whole week to decompress. Then the second week, then the, then the, then the week you're ready to come back to work, you start thinking about, I need a three-week vacation. If I had a three-week vacation... I'd have peace. Well, there are some people that have longer vacations than that. They don't have peace, do they? If I just had the right relationships, you know, if, if people would appreciate me for who I am and understand how wise I am, if people would do what I say, I'd, yeah, but there are people that have the reputation of being really wise and being brilliant and helpful. Well, they don't have peace. You see, the things that we often think will bring us peace don't bring us peace. And here's where the problem becomes a, a big difficulty. If you were to read most of those 384,000 books, I'd be willing to bet you without reading them that most of them are saying, if you could orchestrate the things on the outside, it would bring you peace on the inside. And yet there are people that have orchestrated the outside pretty well, or they're actually experiencing the very things that you think will bring you peace, but it's not bringing them peace. Why is it going to bring you peace? But they're making a lot of money in the books, right? Because the authors probably think, if I had a little bit more money, I'd have peace. But that's not working either. So we need to not just pursue peace. We need to understand peace. Let's move from pursuing or understanding to talk about, or let's move from pursuing to understanding. We use the word peace, um, but we're not quite sure what it means. What we often mean does not line up with what the Bible says. So I'm not saying that what you think it means isn't right. I'm just saying that what you think it means doesn't kind of square with what the Bible often says. The word that we often use for peace comes from the Latin word pax. And do you know that the word pax is the word that pacifier comes from? How many of you parents thank Jesus for pacifiers? Raise your hand. Oh, yeah. Now you know how they work, right? Here's, here's how pacifiers work. Your little bundle of wonder here. Uh, is very agitated. She cannot be consoled or silenced regardless of what happens, right? You did the diaper thing, you did the hunger thing, you, you tried everything and it, it's still, like it's ruining the whole evening and there's no peace. So you reach for that little plug, right? 
and you make sure you got the right end, and you plug up that opening from which all the noise is coming, and it's like amazing, right? It's better than a stopper in a bathtub, right? Boop, and, and there's people. And so the people that invented that thing, they knew exactly what to call it, right? They're calling it pacifier because pacifier comes from peace. And having done this pastoring thing for a long time, I'm going to invent the adult pacifier because some of you need it. When those things are coming, if I could have a pacifier for email, that would even be better, right? Well, anyway, we, we better move on. What does the Bible mean by peace? Well, you all know the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word for peace is the word shalom, which is a really, really popular word in the Bible. In fact, you know a city named for peace, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that's city of peace, right? And God's all kind of about this peace. But it's not exactly what we mean. We often mean by peace the absence of conflict. But that's often not what the Bible means. In fact, Jesus seems to say you can have peace in the midst of conflict. So the words aren't lining up quite right. First of all, the word shalom or the word peace is a greeting. I had a church in New York City for a while. And right around the corner from our church was a big playground. Not a lot of playgrounds in the city, but we had a big playground around the corner. And they had a whole bunch of fields. They had baseball fields, soccer fields, little bocce courts. And on most Sunday afternoons, lots of Hasidic Jews were there. You know, the ones with the curls and the hats and their prayer shawl hanging out front. They were all there. And so I would go over when the girls were little. We'd kind of hang out at the fields and stuff, and they had their pacifiers in. It was a good afternoon. And while we were there, whenever uh, a new person would come to the game, everybody would say, shalom, shalom. And I got a little confused because when somebody would leave, they'd say, shalom. And I think, you guys don't know whether you're coming or going or what. Yeah, but shalom means hello and goodbye, kind of like aloha, right? It's hello and goodbye. It's both. So one day I said to one of these guys, like, why do you say shalom? Like, why do you say peace? He said, uh, when we say shalom, we declare that God is present. That's what it means. And where God is present, there is peace. I said, why do you say it when you leave then? Because we want them to know God is present with them as they go, and they can go in peace. That's good, right? Shalom, peace means, yeah, God is present. Where God is present, there can be peace. And we should want peace when people are with us and peace as they go. So it's a greeting. But the word peace also means wholeness or completeness. It's whole and complete. So if you remember, uh, you've heard me say this a bunch of times, I think, sin always brings separation, disconnection. Peace means you're connected again. Peace means you are reconnected. So it works like this. Sin brings separation between us and God, separation within ourselves, right? How how is that sin within ourselves evidenced in the beginning of the Bible? Adam and Eve are separate from themselves. They think they're God. How much more deluded can you be? They think they're God. And it brings separation between people. So they're kind of separated from each other, separated from themselves. They think they're God and are separated from God. When God brings peace, he's bringing connection again, wholeness between people and himself, people and themselves, and people and each other. I hate to tell you this, but uh, Christmas is coming. And that means someday soon, You will wander into the basement or the attic 
and you will pull out that tangled mess of wire that has your Christmas lights on it. And you will bring it down, and it will be a giant, ours is usually a giant ball, because I'm not real careful putting it away, I'm careful putting it up. Inevitably, you all, t- I don't even know, inevitably, when you plug it in, what happens? Half of it lights, right? Half of it lights. If only you could take the cutters and cut out the section that didn't light and hang it up, but then you get electrocuted, and you know, it's a whole big thing. Uh, so what do you do? Well, you sit down and you push every little bulb in to make sure it's tight. And after two and a half football games, they're still not let you throw it all out. So I've got a new plan this year. The lights are gone out with the tree, right? I'm throwing the whole thing out. It's only like five bucks for a new string of lights rather than waste two hours looking for it. It's all gone out. What are you doing with the lights? You're trying to bring peace to the strand of lights. You're trying to bring complete. It's not complete. It's not connected. And what you have to do is connect it. Well, peace in the Bible means connection. We even use that kind of terminology, right? In Jesus, we experience peace with God. There was one separation. Now there's peace. In the gospel, we can have peace with ourselves coming to the realization that we really are screwed up. But God loves us anyway and wants to use us anyway and forgives all of our failures. And we really can have peace with other people. That's amazing. As we step off the top rung of the ladder and let some other people step on the top, we can have peace with them. So peace is a greeting, and peace means completeness. But maybe the best word is peace means harmony. Harmony. Now notice, when there's harmony, are all the instruments and singers singing the same part? No, the answer would be no for you non... I I even knew that. (laughs) No, if you have harmony, they're not all singing the melody. It's different. And so up here we have some instrumentalists playing one part, some playing another, but it goes together. Even the singers, they don't all sing the melody line, Harmony means different parts, but working together for a beautiful whole. That's what peace means, harmony. When I think of harmony, I think of cooking. Not cooking, I think of eating, actually. Somebody baked me, just recently, a homemade sweet potato pie. I I never had one of those before. I'm, I'm a pumpkin guy. I think I'm a sweet potato guy now. But I was thinking the other day, as I was eating my fourth slice. Um, I was sitting here, and here's what I was thinking. Huh. I wonder what the ingredients are that make this. I don't know, but I can guess. Well, there's flour, and there's grease, because all good food has grease in it, right? Or I don't know what it's grease. Sugar, sweet potatoes. I don't know what else. Those are the items. I thought, you know what? If I lined up those items on my counter here, and took a bite of each item, none of it would taste too good. You ever have a tablespoonful of flour? I mean, that's, I remember when I was a kid, I always wanted vanilla extract smells so good. I was, let me have some, and my mom said, go for it. (laughs) Yeah, never again, I only did that once. I mean, see, I'm I'm, I'm bright. Uh, You ever ever have like a teaspoonful of sugar? Some of you like that, and and that's not good. Sweet potatoes without being cooked just take a bite? I mean, that's like a hard apple, right? But somehow, in the hands of a really good chef, the flour 
and the grease and the sugar and the sweet potatoes and the heat and all that stuff gets mixed together so something delicious comes. That's amazing, right? That's what God wants to do. That's shalom in the Bible. That's where God takes different personalities, different temperaments, different spiritual gifts, different stages of maturity, and he mixes them all together in a community so that something beautiful comes out. The community experiences harmony and peace. And from that peace, other people look at that and say, wow, that's the kind of community I want to be part of. That's exactly what we read about in the Bible, right? So what is shalom in the Bible? It's a greeting, declaring God's presence. That's why we can have peace. It's completeness where things work because they're connected. And it's harmony where different people play different parts, but the music that they create is beautiful. That's what peace is in the Bible. A little different than just the absence of conflict, don't you think? Well, how do we cultivate peace? Right? Our purpose isn't just to understand it. We need to cultivate. How are we going to cultivate this in us? Well, I've got a passage for you. If you have your Bibles, turn to James chapter 4. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. And here's what I want you to do. As I read through the 10 verses, I want you to kind of follow along on your phone, on your tablet, just listen to me, whatever you want. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to notice that the context of peace or excuse me, the context leading to peace is a context of alienation and separation. Here's what I want you to see. In these verses, there's alienation and separation between people and God. There's alienation between people in themselves, in and of themselves. And there's alienation between people and each other. All of the alienations here. And peace can still come. All right, here we go. James 4, beginning of verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That sounds a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? Now here's my guess. As I read through that, some of you are probably thinking, well, I know what all that's about. I know what that enmity is, that struggle, those wrong motives on the inside, fights and quarrels. I got all that handled. Well, good, you're in a great position to learn about and move to peace then. Peace can only come in the midst of conflict. Well, you've got conflict, now let's move toward peace. What's the first thing you have to do? You have to acknowledge the problem. I'll give you a little hint. The problem with you not experiencing peace is not the person sitting next to you. They're not the problem. 
It's not your church. It's not the music. It's not your neighbors. It's not your boss. It's not your employees. It's not your account. It's not your bank account. None of those things are the cause of your lack of peace problem. What does James say the problem is? The problem is pride. Do you notice that? Here's how he says it. He says it two times. God opposes the proud, shows favor to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves, and the Lord will lift you up. Pride's the problem. But, you know, if you just step back from your own situation for a second, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Like, like when I look at it from my perspective, it doesn't. But look at it broadly, it kind of makes sense. Here's what it's like. Well, if you're looking out for number one, and if number one in your world is you, and if I'm looking out for number one in my world, and number one in my world is me, and you look around here in the room, everybody's looking out for number one, and number one happens to be themselves. What are the chances that we're all going to work together and, experiencing, and experience peace if we're all working for number one what we want? None. There's no shot. Pride's the problem. Now, I knew I was going to have to do some convincing, so I have a little quiz for you. A little pride quiz. Don't raise your hands anything. You'd be way too embarrassed. But let me give you a little pride test. Answer honestly in your own heart. I'll, straight up, this is what James says, what the Bible says. You will never get to peace if you don't acknowledge the problem. Pride's the primary. Well, I don't have a pride problem. <laughs> That's a telltale sign. But <laughs> uh, Okay, here we go. Proud people are much more aware of other people's faults than their own. How are you doing on that one? Here's my guess. Already this morning, you got ticked off and told some people about the problems, failures, and faults of somebody else. That's not a good sign. How vocal are you about speaking up about somebody else's faults, and how vocal are you about speaking up about your own? Proud people see and speak of others' faults much more than their own. We all have that disease, don't we? It's always her, him, them. Yeah, that's the first one. Pride leads you to separate quickly from people that criticize you. Somebody slam dunk you? Somebody say, I'm done with them. I'll never talk to them again. Some of you in this room, I'd be willing to bet, some of you in this room have left jobs because somebody criticized you and you didn't want to see them anymore. That's a pride problem. I, I don't know about your job situation. Don't, don't go take that lousy job because I said that, all right? <laughs> but do, do you separate from people that criticize? That's not a good sign. If you can't take criticism, that means you're full of yourself. Proud people are dogmatic and sure about everything. They know the right way to do everything. There are no minor, major issues. It's all major, and proud people know the answer to every question. I could look at some of you, but I won't. <laughs> proud people either love to confront because they like to win. And if you're a proud person that thinks and speaks quickly and well, you love confronting because you'll win all the time. If you're proud but you don't think real quickly or you don't speak real well, you'll never confront because you don't want to lose. 
So are you a proud person that loves to confront? Or are you a proud person that never confronts? Either of those ends of the continuum is not a good sign. Last one. Proud people tend to be unhappy. Always feeling sorry for themselves. They're not getting what they deserve. Always a victim. Always a victim of someone else's problem. Always the brunt of someone else's failure. So you always discouraged, always unhappy. That, that's not a good sign. Seeing other people's faults more than, that's not a good sign. Speaking about other people's faults, never your own, that's not a good sign. How are we doing with that? Well, I think we'd agree we all have the problem, right, to one degree or another. The step to finding peace is to admit you have the problem. But once you acknowledge the problem, then you have to live in community. You have to connect in community. It isn't just enough to know the problem. You've got to connect in community. Community, in, in some sense, right, like a community like Calvary Church, is like a test. So we think, Hi, you people are, God is testing me, tempting me with you guys. No, community is always a test. It works like this. What do the best tests in school do? They show you how much you know, and they grow you as you're studying and preparing for the test. Good tests show you and grow you. Community shows us how good we are and how proud we are and how humble we are, and community grows us. So how well are you doing at living in community? You know what, um, you know what community takes to have really good community? Death. If you want good community, you have to die. Jesus knew that. Here's what Jesus said. You've got to die to yourself so you can live to someone else. Die to your agenda this afternoon. Die to your preference. Die to what you want. So someone else gets their agenda met. Someone else gets what they prefer. We've got, how do you create community? You die. Oh, yeah, but here's the point. In the gospel, resurrection always follows death. Without death, there is no resurrection. All right, so let's play that back with some relationships in our lives. When husbands and wives die to themselves, marriage gets resurrected. Isn't that right? When family members, moms and dads, die to themselves, a family gets resurrected. When members of a small group die to themselves, a small community gets resurrected. And in a big church setting, when congregational members, community members, die to themselves, a church gets resurrected. And the reason resurrection can follow death is because Jesus died to pay it all, and that resurrection leads to all the other ones. Pride's a problem. That's the solution. Well, one last thing, we have to apply the gospel. Did you notice that in the verses? You have to kind of apply the gospel. It's kind of said in a weird way. Check, check the verses. James says, you adulterous people. And immediately, whoa, how do we start talking about cheating on your spouse? Where did that come up in the verses? Now, it kind of works like this. Think of three concentric circles, right? On the outer circle, we have peripheral issues. You have lots of peripheral issues in your life. 
peripheral issues. Maybe the Eagles game this set. Maybe that's a primary issue to you, but for most, that's a peripheral. It needs to be a peripheral. You need an adjustment in your peripheral, all right? You've got peripheral issues. Things you really want to happen today, things that are kind of important to you. Then you've got primary issues. I hope your marriage is in the primary group, right? Your family's in. I hope your job's kind of in the primary group. And then you've got a little one in the middle, your core issue. Peripheral, primary, core. You know what the Bible says over and over and over again? Only Jesus, look, you may not like that because that's the circle you normally live in. <laughs> but, and Jesus would say, you're in my circle, right? Like, you're, get out of my circle, darn it, so I can get in there. Um, why does James call his readers adulterous? Are you adulterous people? Because they're cheating on Jesus with something or someone else they're putting ahead of him. He says, you guys are acting like a bunch of adulterers. When you remove Jesus from the circle he belongs in, you don't just break the law, you break his heart. He loves you and made you the center of his life, and all he's doing is just like a good marriage. Jesus says, no, I want to be the center of your life. I made you the center of my life. Now you make me the center of your life. And what do we go through life saying? Nah, I don't think so. I need to put myself. You adulteresses? That's how it goes. Look, I'm old enough to remember that healing often comes on the other side of pain. They're trying to do away with that with our kids, right? I grew up in the Mercurochrome days, right? I grew up in the iodine days, right? When if you wanted your cut made well, you're going to pay for that cut being made well, right? Remember that little bottle it would open, and, that, and that glass rod came out of it, right? Yeah, my mother would be chasing me forever with that glass rod, with that red fluid on there, right? Or iodine was worse, right? You, oh, oh, they got sissy medicines now that make you well, right? We grew up, many of us in the we grew up, when you had to go through hell to be made well, right? No more. Well, here's what you, why all this nasty talk in James 4? Here's why. Healing comes on the other side of antiseptic. Healing comes on the other side of surgery. Healing comes on the other side of mercurochrome. Healing comes on the other side of iodine. Before you accept and rejoice in the good news of the gospel, you've got to accept the bad news of the gospel. You and I are adulterers. We put someone else in the center of our lives, usually ourselves, into the place that only Jesus should be in. But we don't just break his law, we break his heart. And when you admit that, and if you need evidence, just use the test of community to see how you're doing. Acknowledge the problem. Show and grow in community and apply the antiseptic of repentance. And then you can experience peace. I'm not saying that all the circumstances in your life are going to be great. That's not going to happen until you check out. But in the midst of the storm, we can experience the presence of God. We can experience connection with God, ourselves, and other people. And we can experience the harmony 
of living life according to the tune God's playing. That's shalom. That's what we long for. You only get it after the antiseptic. Let's stand and pray. Father, we confess that we want the destination. We want the peace. We want the joy. We want the love. We just don't want the antiseptic or the surgery to get there. Well, there's no getting there then. And so, Lord, just like James told his first readers, help us to be reminded today too. Lord, give us the guts to acknowledge the problem. We're full of ourselves. If you don't believe, if we don't believe ourselves, just test it in community. Help us to apply the antiseptic of the gospel, naming our sins, receiving the forgiveness that comes because Jesus died, rose from the dead. Help us now to die to ourselves and experience the resurrections of community. We pray in his name. Amen.